welcome everyone to uh, the next in our uh, Notre Dame International Security Center uh, seminar series. Um, before I introduce Stephen, I'm very pleased to have here, uh, I will do my usual uh, bit of reminding you all that this is a regular seminar series. We have many exciting, intellectually interesting events we hope you'll attend, including uh, one week from today, our next seminar um, uh, is with Jennifer Erickson from Boston College, uh, who's uh, really terrific. And she will be talking on, uh, her title is Norms at War, Submarines and Poison Gas in World War One. Um, she's interested in, I don't know, constraints on doing terrible things to people during war. And um, I think that's something we all uh, would love to, to know about, because we don't like terrible things. So uh, please come and uh, learn about, about those um, uh, constraints or lack thereof uh, with Jennifer next Tuesday here at uh, 4.30. Um, uh, NDISC is also uh, uh, sponsoring uh, another talk this week um, on Thursday that's not part of our regular seminar series, but a special seminar with uh, John Pomfret, um, who's uh, a longtime, very successful uh, reporter on uh, China and U.S.-China relations, published a book last year that um, uh, won uh, a number of prizes, including the Arthur Ross Award from the Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, on U.S.-China relations since 1776. And uh, this is going to be a really interesting talk. Um, he's he's a, a uh, it should be an interesting, an interesting talk. It's co-sponsored with the Liu Institute, and uh, so I hope you'll come to that as well. Um, uh, I'm going to pass around two things, as I usually do. One of them is a picture of the room. Um, uh, please fill in on this about where you are around the table, your name, so that in the Q&A I can recognize you. That'll be helpful. And this is an email sign-up list. Put your name and your email on it to get on the NDISC list because um, we would love to know how to contact you and remind you of all these great talks we have. So I'm going to start sending these around, and I'm going to introduce Stephen Lavelle. So uh, uh, Stephen is um, a professor at the University of Utah and a terrific scholar of uh, international security and international relations. He, he's one of the, the uh, founders and leading lights of um, uh, kind of a, a, a new, emerging, very dynamic school of, of thought in international relations that's uh, debated quite a bit. They call themselves neoclassical realists, and um, they're trying to, I don't know, gin up all kinds of publicity and reaction. Oh, maybe he even has a copy of, of uh, he's going to wave around a book. Look at this, perfect advertising. So this says, neoclassical realist theory of international politics, Copies available uh, everywhere. Anyway, um, but it's, it, it is interesting stuff from an international relations theory perspective to kind of think about how the world works. And today he's going to talk about a particular aspect, um, uh, uh, a granular theory of balancing. Take it away, Steve. Excellent. Uh, thanks, 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 Eugene. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to uh, talking to the group and Mike. You put together a great department. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I figured I was going to talk and stand up today. I've uh, dropped 5,000 feet, so my red, red blood cells are uh, running through me, and uh, I figured I'd get a little exercise up here standing also. Um, 
And today my talk is on a granular theory of balancing, and, and it does build a little bit on, on neoclassical realism, as, as you'll hear from the talk. Um, I really want to kind of present uh, this as kind of an alternative way of how state, statesmen and state leaders think about power and how they balance against power. And um, in fact, addresses a number of the works of people in this room. So it's really a pleasure to present to, to, to be here and present this uh, to them. Um, my argument is that if we look broadly, we find that theories of balancing under, are under assault. And we find both the theoretical and the historical record is being challenged by both realists and, and uh, non-realists. And they're challenging this idea of what I call aggregate power realism. And, and aggregate power realism is the idea that states balance against shifts in overall military capability. I'm mostly going to be focusing on balance of power, but you could also toss in uh, power transition and hegemonic arguments also into this, this broad term that I call aggregate power realism. And there's lots of criticisms of, of this idea. And again, aggregate power realists are being challenged by, by realists and non-realists alike. So we have to be really, really clear about that. The, critics, the criticisms of aggregate power realism include things like imbalances of power don't provoke counterbalancing. States balance against threats, and they don't balance against power. States bandwagon with, uh, with threats, and they don't balance against capabilities. Domestic politics leads states to underbalance or fail to balance instead of balancing against power. States balance against ideologies and not against power. A balance of power, states, balance of power reflects inter internationalization of norms and rules, and states can use different kinds of legitimation strategies to undermine balancing coalitions. So a whole host of arguments about why states don't balance against power. And if we kind of dig into the historical record, we start to see problems with this. I mean, we start to see that um, perhaps the critics are right, that states regularly underbalance and they regularly fail to balance, right? If we look at um, the Napoleonic Wars, no great powers consistently balanced against France. Britain was the exception, but it fields a small army. As Prussia emerges and defeats Austria and France, Britain and Russia stand aside. Again, um, uh, as Ger Germany unifies in the center of Europe and this Bismarckian system reinforces this, this disparity, again, there's a lack of balancing on the continent and Britain adopts this uh, splendid isolation policy. After 1898, the United States emerges, and once again, we don't see balancing against it. Uh, prior to World War I, Britain's slow to make a continental commitment to Europe, and the case that I want to talk about in particular today is the 1930s, and Britain and France and Italy and the Soviet Union balance it through half measures against Germany. And, and in particular, we find that Chamberlain and what's called a, a, his guilty men, his kind of inner circle of 15 people, they underbalance against Germany. They reject massive rearmament, they're outspent in terms of military expenditure, they block a continental commitment, they, re they uh, reject this idea of allying with France. Again, these are all evidence to kind of support this idea that states rarely balance against power, that balancing um, states tend to underbalance or fail to balance all of this. You know, kind of given this, this conclusion, one comes up with this idea that states rarely balance. I mean, this is kind of the critics uh, uh, challenge this idea of aggregate power realism. And this is really a serious challenge to both theories of balancing 
and to balance of power. Um, some have argued about that we should, we should abandon the concept of balancing. Others argue that we should broaden the concept of, of balancing to include soft balancing and non-military forms of resistance. And the pitch I'm going to give today is that neither abandoning balancing or broadening the concept of balancing is necessary. I'm going to argue that, in fact, there's a lot of balancing occurring today. That there's plenty of balancing out there. The problem is that a number of the cases that we see are incorrectly coded as under, missing, or non-balancing. The existing theories are just too blunt to capture a lot of balancing that's occurring out there, and that the baseline, this baseline of what I call aggregate power realism is problematic. I don't think states balance against aggregate shifts in power. And, and that's the pitch I'm going to give. And that's the, the reason I have the title of, of the paper today. The pitch I'm going to give is that we need to have this more granular theory of balancing, this more fine-tuned theory of balancing. I'm going to argue kind of the thumbnail sketch of what I'm going to talk about today is that states target balance. They target their balancing against very specific elements of power. I argue that leaders regularly disaggregate military capabilities. And it's really important that it's regularly. This is how leaders think about power. They regularly disaggregate power into its elements or components of power. That's the first part, to identify threatening states. And the second part is they target their balancing against those specific elements of power. Again, leaders disaggregate power and they regularly do this. And this is where our work my work overlaps with the, the neoclassical work I've done before. These aren't deviant cases that I'm talking about. This is how leaders usually behave. They often behave this way. And leaders are pushed and prodded to do this by structural modifiers. So we bring things in that modify the structure. And what we look at and what I look at in this paper is geography and shifts in technology and also what I call inter an intervening variable, how leaders think about power. And the important part here is that how leaders think about power and the fungibility of power. How useful is power as an aggregate uh, form for leaders? Um, the important part of the talk is that targeting, targeting balancing is not a, a deviant case of aggregate power realism. Right? One could argue that states regularly balance against shifts in, in aggregate power, and every now and then there's deviant instances where states target balance. My point is that states regularly target balance against threatening elements of capability. So if we kind of go back and look at the history that I, that I just outlined, if we look at the Napoleonic Wars, Britain and Russia did target balance against elements of France's power. Right? Britain didn't raise a continental army because France never raised a large navy. Uh, Russia was more than willing to allow Austria and Prussia to fight it out um, and bear the primary fighting of balancing, against, um, of balancing against France. Britain emerges as the wealthiest power after the Napoleonic Wars, and it doesn't provoke counterbalancing because its naval power doesn't pose a threat to the other continental powers out there. Um, Britain and Russia are tracking Prussia's rise. And they favor a unified Germany in the center of Europe because it'll enhance elements of their own power. For, for Britain, a stronger uh, Prussia will force France and Russia to divert their resources from the empire, from challenging Britain's empire, and away from naval programs back to the continent. Russia sees France and um, uh, sees it, uh, Prussia's rise as a check on France and Austria. Again, Britain. 
uh, doesn't challenge Bismarck and the Bismarckian system because Germany doesn't build up a navy. Once it does build up a navy after 1902, Britain engages it in a naval arms race. Again, another case that um, I'll talk about a little bit later on. Britain is, sl is slow to make a continental commitment to Europe prior to World War I and prior to World War II, but again, it's a deliberate policy. They deliberately choose not to make this continental commitment because they don't want to divert resources away from balancing against primary threats. Prior to World War I, the primary threat is German naval construction, and as I'll talk about later today, prior to World War II, the primary threat is German bomber construction. They don't want to divert resources away from those primary threats to balance against secondary threats, which would entail fielding a large um, standing army. Again, the point I'm trying to make is that when you have a more granular view of balancing, and this revised baseline, the revised baseline is that states don't balance against aggregate shifts in power, but rather states balance against specific threats. They target their balancing. I think that this can save the claim that states do balance effectively. Again, it's taking on the critics who argue that there's lots of underbalancing. In fact, underbalancing is usually a norm, and states balancing effectively is rare and uh, rarely occurs. So, I think the critics are right in the sense that shifts in distribution of power don't always provoke balancing. And I think the critics are right about the problems with aggregate power realism, that it misses a lot of balancing. I think that where the critics are wrong is that instances of underbalancing, instances of non-balancing, instances of misbalancing are overstated. Right? I think there's more balancing going on than the critics tell us, and I think there's more balancing going on than aggregate power realism tells us. So, so let me define a couple of things. First of all, I want to define what is balancing. We have to be really, really clear here about what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. Balancing entails the aggregation of military capabilities. So states building up their military capabilities, and they're doing it either internally by extracting or mobilizing resources or externally through alliances. So that's the first part of balancing. Second. Balancing requires a target. So if a state's building up its military capability, but it's not directed towards another state, it's not balancing. It is building up its capabilities, but it's not balancing. And third, balancing has to occur within a certain time frame, a certain set time frame of the target state's actions. Now, I borrow from Randy Schweller, and, and Randy Schweller talks about four distinct kinds of balancing. He talks about what he calls appropriate balancing, overbalancing, underbalancing, and non-balancing. And, and I'm just going to focus on the first three. I'm going to focus on appropriate balancing, overbalancing, and underbalancing. Appropriate balancing. What's, what is, what's appropriate balancing? Appropriate balancing means a state balances against the threatening elements of another state's power. And of course, the idea here is to deter that threatening state and to prepare for war in case deterrence fails. And, and, and this is the important distinguish where I distinguish myself from, from these aggregate power realists, these realists who argue that states balance against aggregate shifts in power, overall power. If latent power is fungible, if it's easy to convert latent power to a specific element of power, or if you can convert an innovation in one element of power to another element of power, or to a host of other elements of power, the aggregate power realists are right. So again, if a state can easily convert from latent power to a threatening power, or if it can convert gains in one threatening, one element of power that's not threatening 
to another element of power that is threatening, then states have to engage what I call in broad portfolio balancing. They have to balance broadly. They have to balance against both threatening and non-threatening elements of power, right? They have to balance against non-threatening elements of power because a state could convert those into threatening elements easily and quickly. And, and if that's right, I'm wrong. <laughs> you guys are wasting your time here. Um, if that's right, then the aggregate power realist story that states broadly balance against all elements of power is right. And, and of course, you know, the pitch I'm going to make is that if it's difficult to convert power from latent power to a specific element of power, or if it's hard to convert power from one element that's non-threatening to an element that is threatening, then the story I'm telling you is right. The story about state's target balancing is correct. Again, um, it's an important distinction, right? I argue that state power, power is rarely fungible. If power is rarely fungible, then states target their balancing against specific elements and no broader, right? They target their balancing against those specific elements. If you're a naval power and you're really powerful in that naval power and it's easy to convert the gains in the naval power over to air or land power, you have to balance against all elements of power. If you're a naval power, but you can't convert that power over to other elements of power, then all you do is target balance. You bargain balance very narrowly. And in my mind, that's appropriate balancing. Um, again, I think what I have to find in the archives is that leaders go out and they ask themselves and they talk in cabinets uh, and in, 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 in meetings, how fungible is latent power? How quickly can it be converted to a threatening element of power? How convertible are gains in one element of power to another element of power? And if they conclude it's rare, then states target their balancing against very specific elements. In my mind, underbalancing means the state fails to mobilize sufficient resources or form large enough coalitions to target balance against a specific element of power. Right, a state might build up its capabilities, but if it fails to target it against a threatening element, it still is underbalanced. And interestingly enough, I think overbalancing means when a state balances beyond that threatening element. Again, if power is not very fungible, then a state's balancing is going to be fairly narrow. If power is fungible, if, if aggregate power realists, if balance of power realists, and power transition realists, and hegemonic realists are right, that power is fungible, then states are going to have to broad broad, they're going to have to balance broadly even against non-threatening elements, because a state could convert that non-threatening element rapidly and quickly into a threatening element. Um, I argue that leaders that mobilize more resources than necessary, again, I call that overbalancing, and they really just, they risk diverting resources away from targeting their balancing against primary, res primary threats. So let me, let me get a little bit into, the, uh, into the, uh, uh, the, the core of the argument. And, and, and again, for those of you who, who've, who've, uh, who've been forced to, to read our book, um, we'll know a little bit of this um, pitch also. I, I'm going to talk a little bit about structural modifiers and unit level variables. I think st the structure of the international system is an important driver in how states behave. But I think that these structural modifiers and intervening variables, this is what pushes leaders to break part, to parse power into its parts. They, the reason why leaders don't look at aggregate power is I think these structural modifiers push them to break power into different kind of different elements. 
And by structural modifiers, I'm really pointing to two. I'm pointing to, I'm looking at geography and military technologies. For me, these are things that modify the structure. They predispose the foreign policy leaders to see some components of power as more threatening than others. They see some elements of power as more threatening than the aggregate power out there of, of states. And the impact is uneven. It can vary across regions. It can vary across groupings of states. It can vary across pairs. The first one I look at is geography. And again, the pitch I'm making is that they create constraints, but not across the entire system. I'm thinking of things like physical distance, depth, natural barriers, these things push leaders to unpack another state and to focus on those elements that threaten their specific geographic circumstance. So if you think about a country of Israel, the first thing that comes to mind when we think about Israel is small size. It has no depth, right? I mean, um, I mean, it's narrow places. It's basically a distance from here to the uh, South Bend Airport. I mean, that's a, that's a narrow, that's, it's narrow at its waist. What that does, though, it means that Israeli leaders are really attuned to the military capability of its neighbors that allow for rapid conquest. They focus on those elements of power that uh, can allow their neighbors to, to uh, conquer them quickly. Again, their geography is forcing leaders to identify, identify some elements of their neighbor states as more threatening than others. China's another case. China doesn't have a problem with strategic depth at all, does it? It's a big country. But it does have lots of neighbors. And again, that focuses, its, uh, it pushes it to focus on specific elements of its neighbors, 14 neighbors, um, uh, uh, elements that would threaten its power. A second modifier that I look at is military technology. And again, um, leaders are forced to parse another state's power into its elements especially by whether that other state has offensive military capability. They're interested in things like the rate of technological diffusion. They're interested in the offense-defense balance. Again, leaders are going to ask themselves, and this is what I would expect to find in the archives, leaders are going to ask themselves, as military technology spreads, is it going to advantage an element of power of my rival or not? Right? That's what they're looking for. That's the question they're asking. As power, military power spreading, does my neighbor benefit from, does it make a, an element of my neighbor's power threat, more threatening to me? Again, we can think of the period prior to World War II with the naval innovation and aircraft carriers. This was a threat to sea powers. It was a threat to the US and Britain, Japan. It wasn't a threat to all great powers equally, right? So the US and Britain and Japan were looking at as military capability spread did it empower an element of, of our neighbor, of, of, of another country. In terms of intervening variables, um, the variable that I'm interested in is how leaders think about power. Um, and the pitch I'm arguing is that power is just not very fungible. Aggregate power itself isn't very helpful. It's not very fungible. Again, this is pushing leaders to break another country's power down to its elements and focus on specific elements of power to identify threats. Aggregate power just isn't all that helpful in terms of assessing the power bases and power uh, relations of other states. Leaders ask which components are, are rising. Does that rising component pose a threat to us? Is it going to peak above or below our specific elements of power? Right? The problem we have is that aggregate power just isn't all that useful. It's not helpful in deterring or coercing or, de or, or defeating another state. 
Um, as, as one uh, one political scientist told us, right, that the U.S.'s lopsided edge and power strength um, rarely is uh, persistent to find the threats and ultimatums brought about the U.S. and its allies, right? But it's the fact that we're so powerful, our allies still, our regional foes still defy us. So aggregate power in its own isn't all that helpful in deterring coercion and defeating other states. Aggregate power is not all that fungible across different elements of power, right? In the 1950s, the U.S had an advantage in nuclear weapons, right? It had a policy of massive retaliation, but this policy of massive retaliation, right? It wasn't all that useful or credible to discourage uh, wars of national liberation, right? So aggregate power is just not all that fungible across different elements of military power. Again, leaders are gonna ask themselves, how interchangeable or how convertible is military power? Can military resources intended for one task be converted to another task? And again, the, the, the pitch I'm making is that it rarely can. If it rarely can be, states will target balance. Again, if it's easy to convert from one element to another, states have to balance broadly. They have to engage in this broad uh, portfolio balancing. And finally, aggregate power just isn't all that useful across different issue areas or domains. So let me, let me get into the cases. I mean, I, I wanna talk about the cases a little bit. And the case I wanna talk about today is uh, Britain's target balancing against Germany and Italy between 1937 and 1939. And, and I like these cases for two reasons. The first reason is that, and you guys know this if you've read any political science books, political scientists love the 1930s, right? And they like the 1930s because in particular, this is often seen as this is the, uh, primary case of underbalancing, right? Britain's actions against Axis power in the 1930s. So Britain's actions against um, Germany are seen as a case of underbalancing, and a number of people argue that Britain didn't even balance against Italy, right? In terms of a narrow definition of balancing, Britain was the most, much more powerful country, so its actions of resistance against Italy were resistance, but not balancing. They're not considered balancing. In the book project, I look at a whole host of other cases. I look at the United States and the Soviet Union between 1969 and 72. I look at Britain and Germany in the period of 1881 to 1890. It's a great case. You have a really powerful Germany in terms of aggregate power and Britain doesn't balance. Is it a case of underbalancing? Again, the pitch I make is that since Germany hadn't built up a threatening naval element, Britain didn't target its balancing. After 1902, which is the second part of the case that I look at, when Germany does build up its naval capability, Britain balances and well outbeats it in terms of battleship construction. The, the, the um, third case that I look at is, um, or the fourth case I look at is Israel and Osirak. And in 1981, Israel bombed Iraq's nuclear reactor, its reactor, Osirak reactor. And I still have to think about whether uh, attacking another state is considered balancing or not. But in this case, Israel narrowly targeted its balancing. Again, for, for Iraq, there was no fungibility in its power. This, the, Iraq had purchased this reactor from France and Italy. And um, by Israel destroying the reactor, there was no knowledge that they didn't have to worry about the knowledge that, that, that Iraq could build a, another reactor anytime soon. Um, so let me talk a little bit about alternative explanations for Britain's foreign policy in the 1930s. 
and there's lots of them. So I just want to focus on the ones that, that, that deal with, uh, that address my argument in particular. Lots of explanations for Britain's interwar balancing and, and, and lack thereof. The aggregate power realist story, the story that someone like a Mearsheim or a Schweller would tell us, that in 1939, Britain shifted from buck passing, passing the buck of balancing, to balancing against Germany because of the change in the distribution of power. Germany had become a potential regional hegemon. The system has shifted into a period of unbalanced multipolarity. And as a result, Britain shifts from buck passing, passing the buck to balancing against um, Germany. Again, it's a story about aggregate power. Shifts in aggregate power is what forced Britain to do the balancing. Neoclassical realists and, 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 and other forms of neoclassical realism, they look at Britain's policy in the 1930s and they see it as a deviant case. For them, it's a deviant case of Britain failing to balance, right? They don't argue that states routinely fail to balance, but they look at deviant cases of failed balance. And someone like Randall Schweller argues that British leaders prioritize domestic stability over um, balancing against Germany because of a fear of a backlash. Again, it's a one-off case. Christensen and Snyder, again, argue that perceptions of defense advantage in multipolar periods led Britain and France to favor buck passing rather than balancing. Again, one instance of countries failing to balance. And then there's a whole host of non-power explanations, which argue that states regularly fail to balance. And Britain's actions is one a long history of states failing to balance. Someone like Mark Haas looks at the role of ideological distance, and he argues that British conservatives saw the Soviet Union as a greater ideological threat than Germany, and as a result, Britain failed to balance against Germany, right? Again, for them, this is one case in a long history of cases of countries failing to balance. Charlie Kupchan argues that entrenched beliefs of security through empire once again prevented Britain from balancing or block Britain from balancing against uh, Germany. There's a whole host of arguments that look at the city of London, banking, shipping, finance, insurance in England, and they also oppose balancing against uh, Germany because of costly, because of the cost of balancing. Now, um, as you guys can expect, I get that Britain did balance, uh, that Britain did balance, and Chamberlain, uh, was pushed to balance by these structural modifiers, things like Britain's insular uh, geography, the far-flung overseas empire, radar, the fungibility of power. All these things pushed Chamberlain to disaggregate power. When Chamberlain looked out around the world, he looked out and asked which elements of power threatened Britain. Right? He wasn't interested in aggregate power. When he looked out, he identified the most threatening elements of Axis power to Britain. So he wasn't doing what the aggregate power realists tell us, was comparing aggregate power between Britain, uh, overall power between Britain and Germany. And it wasn't the role of domestic politics, domestic constraints that led Britain to not balance against certain elements of power. What happened is these structural modifiers and these intervening variables pushed Chamberlain and the other foreign policy executive to break down the elements of power and identify those most threatening elements, which were the German Air Force and the fear of a knockout assault on the homeland, Japan's Imperial Navy and the threat to Britain's commercial trade routes, and the Italian Navy and the threat to commercial communications to the Mediterranean. 
And what Britain did was target balance against those elements. They deliberately target balanced against them. They didn't buck pass. They prioritized the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy over the Army, and they intentionally diverted resources towards them. Again, it's, um, it's, it challenges both the aggregate power realists and the critics, right? The aggregate power realists who say that Britain underbalanced because it didn't match the buildup, and the critics who also say that Britain didn't uh, underbalance because they balanced against, they, they were constrained in balancing. Now what Chamberlain and the foreign policy executive did is they downgraded other elements of power to secondary and even last in terms of their rearmament priorities. Things like the German army, the German navy, the German land element of power were downgraded. Italy, again, its army and its land components of power were downgraded to secondary. Again, Britain didn't balance against the elements that didn't pose an immediate threat. My pitch is that you can't see this, though, if your baseline is this aggregate power baseline. You only see this if the baseline shifts to this target balancing. And the reason why Britain didn't have to balance against these secondary threats is that Germany and Italy lacked fungibility. They couldn't quickly convert all those gains they had in land power. And trust me, they had. They had made massive gains in land power. They couldn't quickly convert them into naval elements or air elements that would threaten Britain. And as a result, Britain just they were in a tough spot, let's face it. They, they didn't have to balance against those elements. What other people call and label as underbalancing, failed balancing, I see as appropriate balancing. They targeted appropriately against the elements that posed the most threat. In fact, what Britain did do, and this is what's frustrating about seeing Dunkirk in the darkest hour, is that who gets credit for that? Churchill gets credit for all of this, right? Churchill gets credit for this. Churchill was the one who was pushing for this broader portfolio balancing and might have well left Britain in a much deeper lurch come the Battle of Britain. That, that, that's my criticism of both movies, right? What it allowed Britain to do was match or exceed Germany and Japan and Italy and the most threatening elements of power. And that's why the Battle of Britain is the outcome we, outcome we have and that unfortunately, lesson to you all is that um, Chamberlain dies and Churchill writes Chamberlain's history. So if you do pass away, don't let your adversary write your own history because he wrote a history that, that uh, vilified uh, Chamberlain's policy of target of balancing where that's what allowed Britain to have the resources it needed to engage Germany in the air war. Let me just talk about this, the, the balance, target balancing in a little more detail. Let me run through the cases quickly here. Let me talk about the, the Royal Air Force first. Advances in the aircraft, wing production, strategic bomber technology, all this meant that the Royal Navy could no longer defend the UK, right? The, the main threat that Britain faced in the 1930s, the only direct threat it faced in the 1930s was bomber attack to its homeland. And in 1937, again, we already see that Chamberlain is, um, in this review of defense expenditure, he's prioritizing fighters and air defense over bombers and a counter-offensive strategy. What Britain was going to do up until then was if Germany bombed Britain's cities, Britain was going to bomb German cities in retaliation. That was the deterrent strategy they had, this kind of counter-offensive strategy. But the new technology that's coming along allows Britain to target its balancing. Things like radar, new generation of, of, of fighter planes, uh, 
allow Britain to gauge in physical air defense now against Germany versus threatening to bomb German cities in retaliation. And what Britain's able to do is they, they through target balancing, they narrow the gap with Germany in terms of the quantity of fighter planes, but they surpass Germany in terms of the quality of fighter planes they have. In terms of the reserve capacity, the extent of squadrons with modern aircraft, and they're able to do that because it's a deliberate policy, right? The British leadership allows the RAF to break away from kind of this treasury control over the economy, and they allow them to increase production by doing a whole host of new things like uh, de-skilling labor, subcontracting, uh, diluting the lab skilled labor force. All these things that were novel at the time are these deliberate policies to increase aircraft fighter production to target balance against Germany's uh, primary threat. In terms of the Royal Navy, up until 1937, its construction was restricted by legally by things by the Washington and London Naval Treaties. The Navy had the advantage is that it was the preeminent uh, among the military services, and it faced fewer threats, fewer shortages than other uh, services. But even the Navy gets ranked as second in priority. It's behind the Royal, Na Royal Air Force. And again, the concern is it's, it's myopic uh, target balancing. They're concerned that if they build up the Royal Navy, they'll divert resources and skilled labor and industry and plant away from uh, the RAF, right? And also, sea power is seen as kind of a long-term weapon, right? And they favored primary defense over deterrence, right? That's why they're focusing on um, the naval power. The problem the Royal Navy has is just overstretched just facing all these rising challengers, it can't compete with them all. Originally, the Navy talks about an offensive military knockout of the Italian Navy. They're not gonna bounce against it, they're gonna knock it out. And by knocking out Rome, um, right, it, then they would just, could face, they would just face uh, Germany and Italy. They reject the idea of um, knocking out Italy because they lack superiority in the Mediterranean. Even though the Royal Navy is larger than any single navy, the problem is they're so overstretched and in the Mediterranean, they lack superiority. And instead, they target balance against the uh, Italian Navy. They relocate ships from the Far East, the Mediterranean, the home waters, and they ally with France. France is gonna uh, protect the Western Mediterranean and they're going to protect the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. The army, you know what happens to the army in this story, right? It's the lowest of the low in terms of priorities. It moves from, and again, the reason why is these structural modifiers, right? Uh, Britain's detached from Europe, no contiguous powerful neighbors, protected by the channel from invasion, and as a result, um, when it looks at Germany, it sees its navy as the much greater threat than, than its land army. The uh, navy, in, by 1936, the, the army is the lowest priority of the services, and guess what? Preparation for a continental commitment has the lowest priority for the British responsibility. So continental commitment has fallen way down on the list of priorities, and, and this is where the aggregate power realists are right. This is where Mearsheimer's right in the story. Britain does buck pass. They buck pass this element, though. They're not buck passing balancing against, uh, against Germany. They're buck passing balancing against the landed element of German power. They don't want to divert resources. Again, they don't want to divert resources because resources are, are scarce, 
And also, they know that even though Germany's gonna make all these land gains, it can't convert those land gains into air threats because power is just not that fungible. Not until 1939 does Britain stop buck passing against this element of power. So, so this leaves me with a couple of questions. The first question is, um, what's the correct baseline for balancing, right? Is the correct baseline that states balance against aggregate power, or do states target their balancing? Second question, how fungible is power? How easy is it to convert power? And I think that this is the linchpin of where I differ with, 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 some, with both aggregate power, there's aggregate power realists, there's the critics, right, and then there, there, there's me, and I differ with them both about, in terms of how fungible is power. If power is fungible, their, their pitch is right. And the third question, and I think this is an important question also, is Britain's balancing in the 1930s a deviant case, right? Because for neoclassical realists, it is. It's a one-off case, right? That's what they're interested in, especially kind of the, the narrow form of neoclassical realism. The critics say this is one case in a long history of failed balancing, right? I talked about all those cases in the beginning, and I treat this as a case of appropriate balancing. So let me, let me bring this up to the current time period a little bit. Again, I argue that states regularly disaggregate power and that states target balance against the most threatening elements of power. And, and if I'm right, and this is the important kind of punchline, I think that both kind of this aggregate power realism and its critics are missing a lot of balancing that's occurring against power. I think there is a lot more balancing occurring against power, and this is kind of a serious challenge to balance of power realism. Um, balance of power realism misses a lot of balancing if the focus is on overall military capability. I mean, one gets kind of in this uncomfortable position of explaining, for at least for some neo-realists, why there's no balancing against the US despite its overwhelming capability, right? And that's their focus, it's overwhelming capability. Uh, I argue that China and Russia are balancing, they're target balancing against very specific elements of American power. China's anti-access and, and area denial strategy is intended to push the U.S. Navy far from its shores. Yet China also knows that if it builds up a true, that, that anything more, anything more than this asymmetrical strategy of target balancing against the United States risks provoking an arms race with the United States, right? A naval arms race. Um, if they do build up a true blue water navy, it does two things, right? It provokes the U.S. In, in a naval arms race. And second, it diverts resources away from their primary threat. Their primary threat is their 14, uh, is their 14 contiguous neighbors, right? And anything that's more spent on navy, right, it direct, diverts resources from balancing against those primary threats and it also uh, provokes the U.S. into an arms race. That like what, like what Britain and Germany engaged in, and Britain easily won, at this point the U.S. will easily win too. Russia's also target balancing against the U.S. and NATO and its eastern expansion. Again, by building up Russia's land power, it also doesn't threaten the United States. It doesn't threaten the U.S. command of the commons, and it's unlikely to provoke a naval and air arms race, and the Russians know this, the saving grace for the U.S. is that China and Russia can't become blue water naval challengers anytime soon. Right? They can't take 
that the, the gains they've made in land power are easily and quickly converted into naval power. So power is just not that fungible. Um, in terms of uh, kind of power transition and hegemonic arguments, I think they're also wrong. I'm clustering them in this aggregate power realist story. I think they're also wrong. They argue that there's a lack of rivalry and security competition and balancing when power is highly concentrated in a single state. And um, their pitch is that China and Russia won't challenge the United States until they become near competitors, right? They're not going to challenge the U.S. until their overall military capability approximates the U.S. because they know as weaker overall powers, they'll be easily defeated, right? And again, my pitch is that uh, Russia and China, whether they challenge the U.S. depends on whether they have the correct elements of power, right? That's what matters. They'll exploit windows of opportunity and vulnerability when they have the right elements to threaten the United States. They don't need to match the US. They don't need to become a near peer. They don't need to become an equal power. What matters is whether or not they have those, those, those correct elements. And at this point, they're land powers, right? And at this point, they can't become blue water naval challengers anytime soon. Power's just not all that fungible. So in summary, you guys have been waiting for that. In summary, why, uh, I can explain why some cases that are coded as underbalancing, I think really are instances of appropriate balancing. That's the 1930s case. I think I can explain why more powerful states do build up their military capability against weaker states. I think that even though Britain was more powerful, it was balancing against Italy. And the reason why it was balancing against Italy was in the Mediterranean, it didn't have that superior capability, even though overall, its capability was greater than any single state's naval capability. And I can also explain why some instances of non or missing balancing just aren't that problematic for balancing theory, and that's Britain and Germany in the 1880s. Germany's become a powerful land power in the 1880s, and Britain doesn't balance against it, and they don't balance because no elements pose a threat. Thanks. So uh, to remind you, I uh, keep a list, so raise your hand, I'll identify you. When you ask a question, um, uh, uh, it's for posterity, uh, for the web, for thousands of listeners around the world, so please speak loudly because there are these microphones in the ceiling that matter. And uh, uh, Mike is jumping out of his seat, so. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, now with that uh, caution, I thought you were going to say, don't ask any dumb questions. So, uh, so uh, Steve, thanks for the uh, paper and the presentation. I mean, the, the targeted balancing argument seems in, intuitively very attractive. So, you know, I like that part of it. I had a little bit of problem with your fungibility argument, because yeah. I, I thought you were um, conflating two things one of which made a lot of sense, uh, the other of which I guess I wasn't that persuaded by. Um, it, at, at some points when you're talking about sort of uh, aggregate balancing, you're talking about different forms of military power, so land power versus sea power versus air power, and it makes good sense that uh, you know land power would be threatening uh, only in certain context, but yeah. less so in other uh, contexts. But then you, this whole discussion of the sync scores and the latent versus actual power, yeah. uh, 
I, I was less persuaded by, and I was also a, a little bit confused by that. Um, why is it the case? I, I understand why land power is not fungible to air power or sea power. That yeah. makes good sense. Um, but why is uh, latent power, the you know sinews of power, wealth, industrial capability, things like that? Why is that not also uh, fungible? Um, and uh, so the 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 sink scores um, seem to me to be less problematic than the uh, particular raw indices of military power. You can see why uh, you know an island power. Uh, the Japanese don't worry about Chinese tanks or Chinese infantry. Right. You know they're they're worried about uh, air power and naval power. That right. makes good sense. But you're telling me they're not worried about China's latent power. That seems less yeah. plausible. And the fungibility argument seems less compelling. The fungibility part, the latent part yeah. of the argument. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, I think that that. That structure, these structural modifiers push states to, to, to not only to focus on certain elements of power, right, but it pushes them down certain strat pathways of military buildup. And um, the part, I guess, that you see acceptable is the ability to go from one element of power to another element, right? That you don't see as a problem, right? But to go from latent power to a specific element, I mean, there's still a lot of, I mean, there's still a lot of time. An element, I mean, if you think in terms of Britain in the 1930s and air power in the 1930s, right? I mean, the kind of air power that we're thinking about hadn't been around all that long, right? But yet, when you get into this, you realize there's so many generations of these fighter planes going on, right? Even in that early stage of fighter planes as they're being built up, that um, there's just only so much resources that are available. There's only so much skilled labor in Britain. And you're right, you could put that skilled labor somewhere else, and there's only so much plant, or there's only so much steel capability, there's only so much know-how. And you, you could put it somewhere else, right? But it's just, it, it's coming out of something else. And if they had put it somewhere else, it wouldn't be available. Yeah, and, and that makes good sense. But, but I think that's it, part it, of the, yeah. But the, it's the latent piece of it. Yeah. Now the time argument, you know, particularly yeah. in the historical case that you're interested in yeah. uh, makes good sense, but it's not clear to me that you know, a, a wealthy economy today yeah. could not translate you know, the, the latent power into actual military power uh, reasonably quickly. And, yeah. and in any case, the issue then isn't, I think, yeah. fungibility, it's, it's something else. Uh, unless I'm uh, misunderstanding, yeah. you know, what you mean by fungibility. Yeah, no, I have to think about it. I mean, from my mind, it's fungibility, and it's how easily you can go from, you're saying how easy can, can you go from zero to having that aircraft capability, right? And that you don't, but going from gains in aircraft capability, it's different than that from going from aircraft to tanks or whatever it be. Yeah. Um, again, um, I guess I'll have to think through it more. It strikes me, I guess in my mind, up until, up until this moment at least, it had the same fungibility issues in terms of resources and using resources in one way or another. There's only so much skilled labor. And, you, and you're right, you can retool that skilled labor for a new area, perhaps. You're going to have to give up something, though, also, by, by moving that labor over, and the plant, and the industry, and the resources. Um, 
again, for Israel, in the case of Israel's attack on Osirak, there was no fungibility, right? There was, there was no internal talent, so to speak, of they could do this. So they could target the reactor and take it out, and it wasn't like they could just rebuild this. And again, it, even in that case, they're only delaying it for nine, 10 years. They, they weren't removing that threat, but they were able to delay it because there was no fungibility. There's no, there was no in-house skill level that could rebuild this quickly. Yeah. Yeah, the two finger, two finger really, really right. fast because yeah. uh, so so as you were talking, I was thinking about um, international arms trades, and yeah. so how does it impact the, a country's ability to say go out and buy weapons? Yeah. I, I get that like yeah. it would be hard for them to come up with their own plans and everything else, but when you can go out and yeah. just contract <laughs> it out and, and buy it from somebody yeah. who's already set up to do it, how does that change the fungibility yeah. aspect of it? Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's why when I was thinking about alliances, you can just you can go out and find an ally who has that element that you don't have. And, and again, I, leaders are, are looking at this, right? So you could go out and um, you could go out, if you have a weakness, you could go out and find an ally that has that strength, right? And, and clearly, I mean, it's a good question. The arms trade is a good question that perhaps you could go out and purchase a weapon. Can China go out and purchase a blue water navy I don't think so, right? And that's what, again, they might be able to purchase a certain element of it, but can they purchase the entire Blue Water Navy? That's what they'd have to do to catch up. And who would they purchase it from, right? I mean, you're right, the seller's probably not gonna sell it, right, for them to buy it. But, but certainly, and, and that's where I have to be careful. It's not a story about a specific weapon system versus um, an element of power. Um, but that's a good question. My question is, is also on the fungibility, yeah. element, which seems really to be the, the key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and I'm also skeptical about the latent power to, yeah. to military power thing, in part because, so if, if I take your explanation to be the correct one, yeah. then it raises all these other implications that I'm unclear about how those then comport with outlines of the case, right? So yeah. was Hitler then just totally wrong to think that conquering Europe was going to make him militarily yeah. Right. I mean, if there's a case for latent power turning into military power quickly, it's Germany you know, between 33, 36, 36, 39. He pulls off this amazing um, you know, increase in the size yeah. of the military. Yeah. Um, and he could, you know, it seems to me like he could do that with tanks or he could put it in the Air yeah. Force or, or whatever. And so... Yeah. His whole strategy then of conquest is to continue to build up those, you know, he's taking coal in Czechoslovakia and you know yeah. steel production in France and all this kind of stuff to make a bigger military to eventually go after the Soviet Union. So, yeah. you know, was was Hitler completely, like if we think that Britain wasn't making a mistake, then it becomes Hitler's making a total error about the relationship between latent power and military. Yeah, power. yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean. So the, so the British are looking at Germany and they're looking at the naval building capacity. And they realize they don't have the skilled labor and they don't have the shipyards and they, don't, they have shortages of steel. And so they're able to see that that, that element cannot, will not pose a threat to Britain. Right? They're going to have these pocket battleships that are going to threaten their trade. I mean, it's going to threaten their trade, but it can't threaten the homeland. Um, the question you raise is a good question. And, and again, the story I would tell is the story you told, though, in the sense, I have to think about the latent power part. But the fact that they built up a land power makes sense, right? They, they didn't divert resources away to an air power. 
nor to a naval power, yeah, Germany, as, as they could have, right? I mean, they, they certainly could have diverted more resources, but it could have left them perhaps, we know the, we know the story, you have to tell the story going forward, not looking back, right? And nobody expected France to be as easily defeated as, and quickly as defeated as they were. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it goes to how do you think about you know you know again yeah. sort of like the baseline of how much they would spend on an airline yeah. and other things and right. you know you can make the argument. I mean, their their army is only semi mechanized. Yeah, right. Right, the air force is totally mechanized. Like you can throw a whole lot more resources to get something to fly. Yeah, right. Than, right. than on land. So I mean, it's, you know, in some ways, I mean, I, I I don't think of the Luftwaffe as something that was really secondary in his thinking, but. I think that then raises the question of like, how do you know what's, how do you decide what's primary or secondary or whatever? And, and Hitler's just sort of, a, he thinks he can do everything. Right. I mean, again, having not been the archives, I can't tell you. I mean, the archives, I mean, that's what you see in the, you see in the British archives, the story though. I mean, the story tells itself. When you get in the archives, you see what they're focused on and you see what they care about. And again, that's why the, the critics keep pushing. It's the city of London, right? It's idea, ideology and the Soviet Union being the greater ideological threat. It's entrenched images. That's restraining Britain. It's not restraining Britain. The reason why Britain doesn't build up a large continental army is not that story. It's a deliberate story. And it's a deliberate reason, strategy not to. That's what I can see. I, hadn't, I just haven't, I don't know. But you can see the story being told and it's a deliberate policy of not building it up. It's, it's not underbalancing. It's not departing from this broad portfolio. It's, 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 and you see all these kind of renditions. You see the Royal Air Force escaping from the rules that both the Navy and the Army can't escape until much later. Uh, so uh, you uh, speak about uh, aggregate power yeah. um, as if it's a strictly uh, strictly based on uh, states' military capabilities. Um, but uh, I know there's uh, significant literature out there uh, that I'm kind of inclined to agree with that uh, a, a state's economic strength as well plays an important part in their yeah. aggregate power. And uh, as a corollary to that, uh, I would say that a country's economic power is, is very fungible. Uh, you know, for, you know, a recent example is China uh, they've transitioned their uh, considerable economic gains in the last couple of decades to a dramatic increase in defense spending, yeah. their defense budget, which has caused the U.S. to broadly balance against China yeah. uh, in, um, through, you know, uh, economic balancing, military buildup, strengthening uh, our alliances in the region. How does your, are you, uh, how does this, uh, very strong case for economic power as a fungible, as a, a economic power as fungible, uh, reconcile with uh, your hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, no, that's those those are good points, and um, I mean, even in the British case, right? They saw the economy as their fourth element of power, right? They wanted a strong economy for that reason, and then again, it's an argument we often that the critics often point out is that they are trying to save the economy and not spend on defense spending. And you're right, I mean, China's become a powerful country, and, and, and that's a, it's an important part. The fungibility, I mean, the, the first thing I'm focusing on, just kind of narrowing the scope is I'm focusing on military balancing. And, and, and you're right, economics is part of the story here, and it's an important part of the story, and it's why 
overbalancing in my mind is dangerous because you're diverting money <coughs> away from other parts of the economy. You're diverting money away from what really matters. In the case of China, yeah, they are, they are, bound, they are building up their capability and, and they are balancing against the U.S. I think they're target balancing against the U.S. They're focusing on a very specific element of power, of the U.S. naval power. I think their primary threat, though, is their continental neighbors and, and that the People's Liberation Army gets the massive chunk of money. Some goes to the Navy, but the Army gets the massive chunk of money. And the Navy is just trying to push the U.S. over the horizon, off its, off its shores. And this is what naval powers do. I mean, this is what Germany was doing to Britain, that it wanted to have a big enough Navy to push Britain away from its ports. And so it is balancing, but I don't know if you would see this in terms of kind of the aggregate. You, would, you might expect there to be more balancing occurring, right, given um, the size of the U.S. And I think that for China, they're concerned that if they spend too much on the Navy, A, they're going to get the U.S. in a naval arms race, which they'll lose, and B, the economic part is they're diverting money away from the People's Liberation Army, and they could be drawing down the economy. So I think they are balancing, but it's not this broad portfolio balancing against the U.S. They're focused on a specific element of American power, that naval element. And they're trying, and they're doing it in an asymmetrical way of not matching the U.S. And they probably, they, you know, matching the U.S. in terms of a naval, they don't want to match the U.S. in terms of a naval blue water navy because it diverts resources and leaves these arms races. But Stephen, what about us? Right. Yeah. So Liam was, was so yeah, maybe the Chinese are balancing against us, yeah. but it sure looks like the United States is balancing against China's just GDP <laughs> going up. Like, why is the United States yeah. going nuts um, in the face of China? Yeah. Their economy's getting bigger, yeah. their military capability's gone up a thimbleful, yeah. but we're on full alert. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's face it. I mean, there's the other things that go on. We saw this in the 1930s. In the period of kind of after Britain abandons, it's, it's, uh, it starts to build rearm. When it starts to talk about rearming in 1933, 34, 35, right, there's discussion of this. And what happens is they throw away this 10-year rule, this idea that, that we're not going to massively build up. And what happens is Air Force, Navy, Army all come together and say, we need to build up. We need to build up all these elements, right? The, the Air Force Army is saying, we need a continental army, right? The Air Force, is, the Navy is saying, we need to build up against Japan. They're the immediate threat. Germany's the long-term threat. So we have to have a two-standard power, right? The Air Force is saying that we need to have 52 squadrons. I mean, you get this all the time. And uh, this is where, in, in, in my work, sometimes I separate between the experts and the executive. The experts are the people who know a lot and they're experts in certain areas, and the executive has to make the, fi the final choice. So um, again, in, the, in, my ninth, in my OSERA case, I've been able to talk to a lot of the experts. The executives mostly passed away by now, but, the, but you talk to the experts, and they pass on what they're experts in. They're experts in Iraq's nuclear reactor. And sometimes the executive listens to them, and sometimes they don't. And so that's my, my response. I think we're hearing a lot of noise. As you heard this in Britain in the 1930s, but again, in the case of Britain, they were pushed to target balance by these structural modifiers. I think a lot of what we hear is just, it's a lot of noise. It's a lot of noise, and the concern I would have is that the U.S. risks overbalancing. It risks spending on elements that don't pose a threat. And um, that's, that's the response to the two questions. I think that's the noise we're hearing, is pushing to have a broader portfolio balancing 
than the U.S. needs against China is. But do you think that the U.S.'s, uh, you know, aggressiveness uh, based on China's economic growth mm. is, is, would you not consider that an acknowledgement yeah. of the fungibility of this economic power? Yeah. Because that is what's causing them to freak out. It is. It's uncomfortable. And, and again, understand I'm talking about balancing. There's a whole range of resistance strategies out there. Economic statecraft, diplomatic statecraft. Again, in my mind, I'm still trying to decide is Israel's strike on Osirak, is that balancing or is that a military strike? And is, is a military strike balancing or not? And, and I, I haven't answered that. So to understand I'm not talking about, I'm just talking about a narrow, one kind of resistance strategy, which is balancing. There's a whole range of resistance strategies, but I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's unnerving to watch another country become more powerful. You're right about that. And the risk is that the US risks overbalancing against it. It risks taking its eye off of what's the primary threats and moving money into balancing against secondary threats. And you might say, well, we're a wealthy country and we can afford to do so, right? But it does come at expense of something else. I mean, it is scarce. It's spent one way, it's not spent another way. So just to orient people, we have remaining a little more than 20 minutes. I have uh, uh, Sean, Joe, Ben, and Dan on the list right now. And um, if others want to join, you can. But of course, it, you know, I'm just warning them that when you join, they've got to be shorter. Uh, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, so I have a question about your causal model yeah. as, I, as I picture it. And I'm going to ask you, I suppose, to put on your neoclassical realist hat. Oh, yeah. Because you're looking at neoclassical realism, right, at how these broader structural factors get mediated through domestic factors. Yeah. Right? And in your story here, you talk about the, the view of the leader as an intervening variable. Yeah. But I don't see variation here, right? Because yeah. you talk about how the leader is going to look out and they're going <laughs> to ask themselves how fungible is power, and yeah. they're going to say it's not fungible. And they're going to look and say, okay, what are the structural modifiers here? Well, it's, it's geography, it's what elements of technology are going to get my... Right? And, and so they're going to look out, if you're in Britain, you're going to look out in the 1930s, and you're going to say, uh, it's, it's the aspects of, right, it's, it's the German Air Force, it's the, the Japanese Navy. Yeah. Right, so, so what's the variation here? What's yeah, the so I mean, so, so, so I still think that structure is important. I just think it's, it's not, it doesn't give us enough information. And so I'm bringing in these intervening variables, right, these structural modifiers. I think they modify... The role of geography and technology just leads different states to behave differently. It's not even, it's not even across them. So yeah, it's, I can see the, the, the role of the, of the structural modifier, yeah. right? but what's the role of the leader? Right? Are, yeah. Aren't you saying that there's variation there? Yeah, it's how leaders think about power. And, and, and again, I mean, I think that what, what, I think what these are things that push them to break power into its elements. It's why leaders, when I started looking at the archives, I didn't find leaders caring about the aggregate power of another state, right? What I did find is that leaders were thinking about fungibility. How, what elements pose, these are the questions they were asking themselves. You know, what elements pose a threat? How fast can they catch up with us? You know, um, does, um, and you just, that's just how they're thinking about power. This is how they, this is how I saw them thinking about power. Which elements are rising and declining? Are they closing the gap with us or not? Do they pose a threat to us? That's the discussions I saw going on. And, and again, it's not surprising that that's what I was looking for, right? In the sense that I think that's how leaders think about power. They, they just, aggregate power just doesn't tell them very much. It doesn't tell them 
doesn't tell them a lot, and so they don't look at it. They look at elements of power. Um, but it's a good, no, it's good. I mean, it's, it's still, that's the part I'm still kind of thinking a little bit about, is, is kind of bringing in the leader's part and how they think about power. I think the, the intervening, the structural modifiers make sense to me. There is an element about leaders, and I'm really thinking about that, that group of, of six or seven people, the inner circle of decision makers about how they're the ones who have to make the decisions, not the experts, and how do they think about power. And what I find is that they are just interested in, in elements. They break power down. It just doesn't tell them much. Um, this is why I have the podium here. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for coming, Stephen, and all I'm halfway across the country. I'm looking forward to fighting with you at dinner, but just yeah. here, let's um, add some suggestions. Make of them what you will. You can yeah. just write them down and answer another question, or you could answer yeah. them if you want. Yeah. Um, three, first one's scope, second one's definitions, and third one's the, the policy implications. Starting with scope, I don't know what your scope is. Yeah. So you you talk like this, you're engaging the balancing literature, which is about great powers, and you have all these non-great power examples, yeah. like Israel and Taiwan. You said national liberation wars. Like, holy shit, the yeah. universe of cases just got really big. Yeah. Um, so this also makes balancing very capacious. Yeah. That that's a problem. So the consequences show up in your conclusion, where you don't. Yeah back up what you say you're going to back up. You said, I've shown you that decision makers regularly disaggregate capability. You don't, because we don't know what the universe of cases is, so we don't know what's regular and what's anomalous. You say there's most balance is granular, but you can't, because you only have two cases. Yeah. You say that the entire APR baseline is wrong, but we don't know what a baseline is, because you haven't defined it. Yeah. Um, we don't know what failed balancing looks like. Uh, is it dyadic? Is it systemic? Is it coalitional? All of these are not dealt with in the paper. Second thing is definitional. There are two definitions that I struggled with. One came out in the conversation, which is structure. I don't know what you mean by structure. Yeah. When other people talk about structure, they talk about things like structural unemployment or structure of the built environment, all of which bakes geography into the cake. Yeah. You don't like that, which is fine, but then you have to define it and justify it. And that's missing from this paper. <laughs> um, the, the other definition that was really problematic is appropriate balancing. Yeah. Your definition of appropriate balancing on page 12, and you underbalance, you have other definitions there, you say, it has no degree, it's just kind. So if someone is of maritime power, you match it with maritime power, but you don't say the degree. Um, there's also no clear uprights. There's a little bit of hand-waving, but like you say there's underbalancing, overbalancing, but I don't know how I could check you to reproduce your results about what's over and under, because there are no clear uprights. Um, third is the policy payoff. You're basically telling me that the U.S.-China standoff is no big deal because they're, they're a lion and we're a tuna. Um, and yet, right? U.S. is really worried about China, and Japan is really worried about China. China is really worried about Japan. Like, that doesn't make sense on your logic. <coughs> um, so the, the, they have the correct elements of power is appropriate balancing, and that's what happened. And yet you don't tell us about quantity or quality, so it's really indecisive Goldilocks element to your argument. That's all I got. Looking forward to dinner. It's all. <laughs> oh, dinner's gonna be fun tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, Joe's. Joe, I mean, Joe. The, the advantage of being here and coming here is the team you put together of, of uh, scholars and people like Joe and Sebastian. No, Joe's on his own on this. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 Eugene. Um, and and the beauty. I mean, for those who don't know. I mean, a lot of these conversations have been going on for a really long time. Um, so you, you, get, you might see it today 
but these have gone on at ISAs and APSAs. And, um, and, and believe it or not, his goal is to have me have a better argument to challenge him, to take him on. Um, I mean, the, do you want to address these, or should I save them? Or? Up to you. How many? There are 16 minutes remaining, three people on the list, and but inquiring minds want to know. So if you have, I mean, I guess I'm, I, I might not have been as clear as I should have been in the scope, because I, I'm certainly not talking about national revolution revolutioners. I'm focusing on great powers, and great power is the focus. Although the, the, what I like about the Israel Osirak case is that. I think that this is how leaders think about power. So, so the scope is, is great powers. And I did present two cases here. The book will look at more cases. The book project brings in more cases also. I mean, the two cases I tried to present here was a state that target balances against specific elements and a stronger state that actually balances against a weaker state. The case I didn't bring up is where there's no balancing that occurs. I mean, I think those are the three cases that I really need to demonstrate that happen. Um, I mean, I think that for, for me, the, the baseline is, the, again, I think that what I call aggregate power realism, which I'm clustering in both balance of power realism and hegemonic and power transition arguments, for both the commonality for both of those is that it's overall military capability that leads to whatever occurs. It's either parity or preponderance in both those arguments. It's parity and balance of power, but it's still overall capability that matters. And same thing with the kind of the power transition arguments. Also, it shifts an overall capability that matters. And that's the baseline I'm challenging. I mean, I think that I think you're right. One has to be very clear about baselines. And this is kind of the problem I think that that power transition and balance of power arguments have. They are talking about uh, past each other in some ways about the appropriate baseline. And for me, the appropriate baseline is much more granular. It's a granular baseline that uh, states target balance. They balance against specific elements of power. That's what matters. Um, in terms of um, appropriate balancing, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's helpful in terms of degrees and things. I agree with you with that. And, and some of these, I guess, I mean, some of this is why you come here to get more feedback on it. But nonetheless, in my mind, the difference between target balancing, what that means appropriate, and what aggregate power balancing means is appropriate, I think are really different. And that appropriate really does depend on, um, it, it depends on how fungible power is. And if power is fungible, then I think, yeah, the appropriate baseline is right. The degrees, yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think that, that's certainly something that, that I'll have to play up in with the bigger project. Um, and, um, but again, if power is not fungible, in my mind, what I call appropriate is, is a definition in the sense that states target against very specific elements of power. Let me hold off because my incentive is to get as many questions versus answers. So I want to get questions, but we'll continue. Thank you once again for the fantastic presentation. Um, I guess I just two quick points, one theoretical and one empirical. Uh -huh. um, theoretically, I, I, most of the uh, examples you give in the case in the paper, it seems to be focusing on uh, the UK and then the modern examples are on China and the US. And I do wonder if there is this kind of, there is a different um, theoretical distinction between uh, land powers and uh, naval powers yeah. uh, 
in Toto, largely thinking about fungibility of power. Yeah. Um, it seems that there are, for to have a, it's always more difficult to launch an amphibious assault, and it's, it seems like it's a plausible argument that it's more difficult to build, uh, turn latent power into naval power throughout history. Um, and I wonder if there is kind of this, once you're in you know, you're France and Germany and you're next to each other, um, latent power becomes much more threatening because it's just, it's more easily convertible into land power. Yeah. Whereas in a naval environment, um, in the, you're the US and the UK, you have the benefit of being able to target balance. So is this kind of something that you can do yeah. uh, if you're further away? Yeah. Uh, and then empirically, um, if that is the case, and there's target balancing, I was just wondering if you've thought about why did the British care about the Low Countries so much throughout their history? Um, it seems like um, they should only be really be worried about these naval powers, and yet anytime anybody with land power yeah. comes close to the low countries, they get all panicky and thinking that they could launch an amphibious assault even though the requisite naval power isn't there, and they launch a cross-strait offensive. So I'm just curious yeah. how your theory would deal with uh, yeah. the defense of the low countries. Yeah. No, the land power is a good question, and it's something that, um, I mean, I have to think about in terms of talking to experts and who do work on land power. And I just don't know. I mean, my, my gut sense is that it's still, there's still, it's hard to convert to land power as it is to air and naval power. And, um, but I don't know. I mean, that's why, that's why there's experts out there and talking to somebody in one of the war academies who does this. That'd be interesting. I mean, it's a good question. Um, why does Britain care about the low, the low countries? You're right, that's the story we always get. They care about the low countries. It's a story we get that they care about the low countries. Yet um, there's lots of instances where, you know, they don't do a lot of that. They don't do the kind of balancing you would necessarily expect if they cared about them so much necessarily either, right? And that we might expect, we would expect there to be, I think, more balancing occurring. I mean, that's the kind of the critic's point is that Britain doesn't do a lot of balancing against Napoleon. And, and why don't they, right? As Germany, as Prussia becomes more powerful and Bismarck dominates the continent, why aren't they balancing? And so I think the reason why they're not balancing is, and it's not a, and it kind of backs, it's not a zero or the one, there's degrees, and I, and, and I think it's, it's a good point about it. Uh, but overall, they're less, they're much less concerned about that element versus a naval element, and that's why they see kind of the rise of Prussia, in fact, something that, that's beneficial, because it's gonna force um, France and Russia to divert from challenging them all over the empire and building up all these naval ships, which they're doing, and force them back to the continent, and that's exactly where Britain wants France and Russia. They want them on the continent and not in the empire. Yeah. Yeah. Dan. Yeah. Um, Sorry. It seemed to me that you have a uh, optimistic view of the future of China's ability to mm -hmm. raise armies and navies and air forces. Mm -hmm. um, I think one can paint a much more negative view of a country that's working very hard on its air force that might go commercial aircraft. Mm -hmm. Makes me think. How do we know what over and under balancing is? And you define it sort of technically, whether or not you're looking at targets and specific yeah. threats. But I look at China as an overall pretty big threat. And so I don't agree with you. And so therefore, your assessment that we might overbalance yeah. is based on your yeah. net assessment of the balance, yeah. which is favorable. <laughs> so is there any way that you can define in a more clear way what yeah. over and under balancing is? And in ways that you know you have to account for future uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. your ability to take an amount of time, I think that was Liam's. That's exactly his question. Is, exactly you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. How do you define what time is relevant or not? Yeah. And the other point about Hitler's rapid rise. Yeah. What do you do in cases of rapidity? Look at the change in leadership in China 
just in the last year or two. Yeah. To, to, what's going on? Yeah. So I think optimism is your view. Yeah. But it's a debatable view. Yeah. And therefore, some of your conclusions yeah. over another question are yeah. affected by that. So. Yeah, it's a good question because I mean the risk is that I'm basically redefining underbalancing as balancing, right? I mean that that's the risk of it, and that that all I've done is what is underbalancing I'm calling balancing, and, and you're right. I mean, I mean that's I mean that's kind of the, the reality of what we do is that when you're confronted by what we say and the policy implications of it, it becomes real, right? It's nice to say it in a classroom, but once you start pushing for a policy, right, there's there's real real things at risk. And and so I mean a couple responses. The U.S. spends a lot of money on its global commons. I mean, the, the, I, I think that one forgets how much we're spending on air and naval power, and one forgets how powerful we are in terms of naval air and power. And it's not by chance we're that powerful in those areas. And, and, and again, the gap between US and China and those elements are still a huge. And, and again, I mean, it's a great question also. One has to be, it's, one has to be careful. It's, it's also the question that Eugene brought up. I mean, one has to be careful not to fall into this, the, the, this threatening story that some will rise about that how narrow the gap is. And to really be careful to understand the gap in certain elements are huge. And the US is really powerful and those elements that we see as primary threats to us. And, and the risk is the other side of the story, is that if you take a broad portfolio strategy, which you, so, again, you could argue the US is a wealthy country and we can afford a broad portfolio strategy. The problem is, is that you are, there's only so much skilled labor and resources and know-how, and you are moving into areas that are secondary threats, and that's the risk you run. And so, um, I mean, it's tempting to have a broad portfolio strategy, and Britain could have done a broad portfolio strategy if it wanted to, but it might have made the Battle of Britain a much closer battle than it was had they gone down kind of an alternative strategy. That's a good point. It's, it's well taken. Please. So I have a couple of yeah. conceptual questions. So the first thing is, is if, wouldn't your title would be better if I put it as uh, a granular theory of internal balancing? Just yeah. as a oh, classical yeah. sort of realist, yeah. uh, one would think that whenever balance, internal balancing is not occurring, yeah. probably external balancing should be occurring. Yeah. And your mind, would, I mean, I think I tend to think that way instead of thinking yeah. of you know, in which particular ways of internal balancing, balancing could be occurring. Yeah. So I, I, I wasn't sure whether your yeah. theory is just about internal balancing, or yeah. maybe I didn't really favor it in this yeah. theoretical discussion. You could introduce that alternative explanation right away. Because balance, balancing, I think, in this literature is often thought of as a compo composed by the two sides of the chest. And the second point is, I think Joe mentioned this, but I, I want to ask it with a specific example. Say, Say in, in the 1930s, like Belgium buys or puts a lot of money in buying barbed wire mm -hmm. and barbed wire in its eastern frontier. Mm -hmm. Would that be a case of balancing in, in your definition? Even if that wouldn't have any yeah. effect in determining Germany's problem? Or, uh, if, but if they are de determining this specific threat and they are putting all the money in the, that specific kind of balancing, right? But is that, would that be balancing? I mean, would your concept stretch that much? Yeah. Yeah. No. The first question is a good question, and and I guess I, I hope I think what might be leading you down that is that, that there's so much focus on fungibility, converting from latent power to an element, a threatening element or not, or from a non-threatening element to an element, and how quickly and easily and transferable that is. Uh, 
But I also think that in response to another question I have, or in response to your question, also your question also in terms of arms races, you can also go out and find an ally that has an element too if you wanted to. So in terms of balancing, it's both internal and external. But you're right, it seems that most of the focus has been on, <laughs> on internal balancing. But I do think there's external balancing going on and, and that countries do balance externally. Um, in terms of the um, example of barbed wire, I guess you're, you're forcing me to, to, it's more than a specific, it's, it's, what I'm thinking of balancing is more than that. It's not one specific thing. It's not having, it's not barbed wire or having a breech loading rifle or something like that. Balance, it's more than that that I'm focusing on. The question is, you know, where do I, what exactly is it is a, is a good question. But it's not having, it's not having a specific weapon. It's a weapon system, right? It's the Blue Water Navy. It's not one ship in the Blue Water Navy. Then Belgium could balance Germany in, in this example. If, if Belgium were to build up its land element against specific, again, if they were building up there against specific elements that allowed them to threat, to threaten them, right? And if that element was something like a, a Maginot-type line, um, I mean, that's what I would expect to see, something like that. Yeah, that they would target their balancing against that. Again, how specific can it be? Again, that comes back to the kind of goal, the, the, about the degrees. I don't know, I have to think about that. How specific is balancing? Or is it, it's resistance, right? But is it balancing? And again, I mean, it sounds like we're crossing hairs, cutting, you know, but, but that's what we do in this field, is that we have to be careful about our definitions, even though they're hard to define. Okay, Griffin has two minutes to rescue us from semantics. Oh, I was gonna go from <laughs> semantics, but I guess it just seems like, um, I mean, the example that I thought of was, you know, the Saudis can purchase wholesale, yeah. you know, a missile defense capability. Yeah. Yeah, in the, over the course of yeah, months. right. So it seems like with certain things, I yeah. know we're talking great yeah. powers, not mid-tier powers, but yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's no, it's 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 certainly it's it's a question, um, and it's certainly protection, but is that balancing or not, right? Um, again, in the narrow definition, I talked about building it up or finding an ally. This could be finding an ally, right? Find the U.S. as an ally. Uh, but is the scope that narrow? Is it barbed wire again? Is it that specific or is it a broader system of balancing? In my mind, I, I guess I don't know what the word is, but in my mind it seems like it's broader than, than that. But it's a good question. How narrow is balancing? If taking out the Osirak reactor is balancing, then so is barbed wire. I don't know if it's balancing. I mean, everything's balanced. Yeah, no, that's the problem. But I think it's... Story, a, anything is balanced. I think that it's a military strike, and I don't know if it's balancing. It's a military strike. I can understand that. But the fact, in my mind, balancing would be building up an anti-ballistic missile system, which Israel chose not to do. They conscious they didn't do it. They didn't have to do it because power wasn't fungible, right? They eventually did. That's why they built it up, because they were afraid that it might go down that path. But at the time, they could deal with it with a military strike. And I don't know if that's balancing. In my narrow definition, it, it isn't. It's preventive war. Yeah, that's all it is. Exactly right. But it's not balancing. Yeah. Not rescue ourselves from semantics. <laughs> However, we did have a highly interesting discussion of, of something about balancing, whatever that means. Thank you all for coming. I hope to see you again next week. Let's thank Stephen.
If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.